This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. This is our fourth lesson in our class on missions here. And uh, this one, likewise, has a, a cool title here, WWPD. Anyone want to guess what that stands for? What would Paul do? All right, so there he is uh, speaking on Mars Hill. And tonight we're going to be looking at what I've called the apostolic pattern. How did the apostles do it? And so I wanted to start off this evening with a cheesy inspirational quote. All right, here it is. A dream written down with a date becomes a goal. A goal broken down into steps becomes a plan. A plan backed by action makes your dreams come true. It's by someone named Greg Reed. No idea who he is. Saw this on, you know, Facebook or something. And I, I put it down. I thought there's some, some good things here. And obviously this is just an inspirational quote. But what I want to do is change this a little bit. And you see at the top of your paper where I kind of changed some of these uh, terms in this little formula here. Okay? So let's apply this to missions. Okay? So the Great Commission is our goal. The goal broken down into steps becomes a plan, and a plan backed by action and the power of the Holy Spirit fulfills the Great Commission. All right, so the same principle works. We have a goal. We have something we want to accomplish. How are we going to do that? All right? So that's why we're going to look and see if we have a model for how we should do this, specific steps that we should follow. Um, that would help us further define our mission of world evangelism. So it's great to say, all right, we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. World evangelism. That's big. All right, how do we break that up into steps that we can actually accomplish? Um, Dr. Sexton at Crown College, he used to say this all the time. Nothing is dynamic until it's specific. All right, so Great Commission, general. World evangelization, general. What we want to try to do here is zone in on some specific some specific steps that can make this become dynamic can put it into action and make it effective so we're going to look try to find a model in scripture and i'll be honest with you i'm not a terribly creative person i like to have a model to follow okay um and so i like to follow the instructions and so what we want to find out is is there a missionary model in scripture. Now when I say missionary model, some of you guys might be thinking I'm talking about my wife, but that's not the kind of model we're talking about here. It's almost va- it's almost Valentine's Day. Come on. Valentine's, yeah. it's over. All right. Seriously though, is there a model in scripture for the fulfillment of the Great Commission? We're gonna look at a few verses because I believe that the Apostle Paul is our missionary model. And we're going to look at some verses um, that I believe show us that this is true. First of all, 1 Corinthians 11.1, you've probably heard this one before. It says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is a very special person. We realize the the Lord called him and set him up in a very special way to be an example to us in many different ways, and I believe it's applicable in this situation as well. 
all of the apostles eventually were, were involved in missionary work. And we'll look at that a few weeks. In a few weeks, we'll be looking at, at some of the things the apostles did. But Paul is the only one whose actions are specifically recorded in Scripture, in detail for us, in order to learn from. We find that in the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts, it's a historical book. It's not really a teaching book. It's, it's not like a manual that says, all right, do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. But it's a historical kind of what did happen. And I believe we can take the Apostle Paul as our uh, ex- example and learn from that example. Here's another verse. 1 Corinthians 3.10. Paul says this, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. So a lot of what Paul did was foundational to the church. I mean, he wrote a good part of the Bible. But one of the things that's foundational, I believe, is his pattern of how he went about his ministry. And so... That's this evening, I want us to look at this, WWPD. What would Paul do, or maybe more accurately, what did Paul do uh, to give us some ideas about what the goal of missions looks like in detail? We've looked at some really general stuff so far, the Great Commission, the whole reason we're doing this thing. What really is the mission, all right, to differentiate uh, the, just fulfilling the Great Commission or trying to do all these other things in the world? And we've, we've talked about what the missionary is. And so I, I want to, to review that a little bit this evening. All right, last week we talked uh, about the missionary from the Bible because as we remember, the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. So we'll be looking at that again. But I just want to refresh our memories with this because once again, this is part of the example that the Apostle Paul set for us. And we talked about this last week, the sending of the missionary. This was in Acts 13. And I'd like for you, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 13. We'll be looking at a few uh, passages this evening in a little bit of detail. And so let's go ahead and open to those so you can have it and be able to follow along. In Acts chapter 13, and we read the first uh, four verses last time. I'm not going to read them again, but we, we saw that uh, Paul and Barnabas, they were called of God, all right? In verse uh, 2, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Paul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So they were called by God, all right? Secondly, they were approved by the church. We saw that in verse 3. Um, the church laid their hands on them and sent them away. And then, of course, they were sent out to preach the gospel. That was what they were sent out to do. And I want you to notice in verse 2, if you'll look there, we just read this. It says, Separate me, Barnabas and Paul, for the work whereunto I've called them. And so we see this idea that there was a specific task that they were meant to do. And so what we're going to do today is go from this time when they were sent and take a look at what that task was and what that might mean for missions today. All right, here's our uh, missionary definition. I put that up there just so we can uh, refresh our memories on this. This is some of the things we we picked up from these first few verses of Acts 13. A missionary is a disciple of Christ, selected by God, approved by the local church to be sent out for the primary purpose of propagating the gospel. 
All right, so now we want to look at what did they do. So I've got the passage up here on the screen, but why don't you go ahead and turn over just a page to Acts chapter 14. So we're actually going to skip over some of the things that happened, some of the places they went to on this first missionary journey. They went to the island of Cyprus and preached several places there, and then they traveled over to Asia Minor, preached in several places over there, and the Lord blessed what they did. And the verses I want to draw our attention to this evening are in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 21. All right? And this is more or less, these verses we're going to read, it's almost a summary statement of the whole missionary journey. All right? Acts 14, verse 21 says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So we have here a list of activities that these men did. We could call them missionary methods. And this is almost a synopsis of what they were doing throughout this missionary journey. And so we're going to, to pull out these specific actions. But before we do that, I want to talk about some of our terms here real quick. Okay? So I've just talked about missionary methods. And we come to missions and the work of the church in general. We have these three factors. All right? We've got the message, the method, and the means. All right, what is the message? The gospel. The gospel, okay? This is the what, all right, of what we're doing. It's the gospel. It's the word of God. That never changes. It's always the same. No matter where we go, we have the same message. No matter when it is in history, for the church, it is the same message. All right, what about methods? The, the message I've put is the way that we get the message out. And this is in the general things. And we're going to be, I'm not going to spend too much time on this right now because this is what we're looking at today. But preaching, teaching, other factors like that. Now the means, we can say this is the how. Okay? So the message, this is very general. This is the gospel. The methods are some specific ways that we get that message out. And the means is going to be the particulars of that. And so I'll give you an example, okay? We know that one of our methods is preaching the gospel, right? Can we all agree on that? One of our methods is preaching, all right? Now, Paul did not always preach exactly the same way or in exactly the same place. Paul often went into the synagogue to preach, all right? Now, when I'm over in Cambodia, I have yet to preach in a synagogue. But I use the radio. Paul didn't use the radio. He didn't have it available to him. There's all sorts of different means that we can use. I've read recently about some Christians in South Korea who are putting gospel tracts inside of balloons and floating them over the border into North Korea. All right? That's an unusual means. So there's lots of ways to do it, and these differ based on your context where you are, who you're interacting with. 
And so the message stays the same. The methods are also biblical, but the means can, can vary wildly. What do you think would be some other examples of, of different means that we have in the church ministry or in, or in sharing the gospel? Anyone want to, uh, anything come to mind when you think about means that could differ across different cultures, across different times and different situations? I mean, one aspect of means is, you know, where we worship, what our church building looks like, you know, how we present ourselves, um, you know, what we wear, lots of different things that go into means. So we're going to see some of that, but to, today I want to focus on the methods, all right? So here's our, uh, our passage, and so what I'm going to do right now is I just want to kind of highlight the key words here, all right? So follow along up there or in your Bible. And so what I want to do is I'm going to highlight these key verbs that we have here. And I believe, I believe they're listed out in the handout that you've got here as well. Well, later on. All right, for now, we're just going to pull these words out, okay? First one, preached the gospel. All right? They preached the gospel in that, in that city and had taught many. They returned. So our next one. All right, confirming and exhorting. And then skip down to the next verse. They ordained elders, they prayed with fasting, and they commended them to the Lord. All right, so here's our, here's our methods that we can pull out from just these few verses. All right, preach the gospel. They taught, they returned again, they confirmed, exhorted, ordained elders, prayed with fasting, commended them to the Lord. And there in a snapshot, you have the missionary task, and you have these missionary methods just given in the course of these three verses. And I want you to notice, go down to verse 26. Okay, after they had finished all this, it says, Then uh, they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God, for the work, notice this, which they had fulfilled. So we started in Antioch. The Spirit said, separate Paul and Barnabas for what? The work. The work uh, whereunto I have called them. And then in verse 26, they returned to Antioch, where they had been, from whence they had been recommended, to report on the work which they had what? Fulfilled. All right, so there's a job they were supposed to do. They went, they did it, they came back, they say, hey, we fulfilled the work. So what is this goal? What is this that we're shooting for here? Alright, here's these, the verses we just read here. What is the goal of the missionary here? What is he trying to accomplish? What is he trying to leave behind? Alright? Some have given this term that I want to use tonight, the indigenous church. All right, the indigenous church. What was the other? Word? Yeah, sorry. Um, it's Acts thirteen two was the first reference, and then fourteen twenty six was the last reference. It's kind of the bookends of that first missionary journey. All right, so this is a term um, people use this in you know books on missions and things like this. The indigenous church. All right, so what does indigenous mean? 
Here's our dictionary definition. All right, indigenous, it's originating or occurring naturally in a particular place, native. Okay, so indigenous. So there's certain plants, for example, that are indigenous to Virginia that might not be indigenous to California or Cambodia and vice versa. You know, I see coconut trees all the time in Cambodia. I don't see them very often in Virginia. They're not indigenous to Virginia. This begs the question, is Christianity indigenous to any part of the world? Where is Christianity indigenous to? All right, I think Christianity is indigenous to heaven. Um, it's not indigenous to the earth. It's something foreign to the earth. So what are we talking about here? Because Christianity doesn't just spring up naturally from the hearts of men. You know, different religions have come out of different places. Christianity came down from heaven. So, so if we're talking about an indigenous church, we know Christianity, the message, uh, didn't come from the earth. It's not indigenous to the earth. So what aspect of the church and what aspect of our mission could be indigenous? The members of the church. Okay. The leaders of the church. All right. So, so members and leaders of the church. Specifically, if we back up to our, our message, methods, and means, where in that spectrum do you think we're going to get indigenous? All right. Something that's native to the environment. All right. What about the message? No. Uh, when people try to make the message indigenous, what you end up with is called syncretism. The combination of human ideas and Christianity. You find that all over the place. I don't have time to go into that right now. Um, you know, the methods. The methods, are those variable? Are those biblical? Or is that something we can take from culture that can be indigenous to a culture? I think you're absolutely right. I think we can be, we cautiously can make our methods to be indigenous. All right? And we're going to be looking at some of the different things that the, the church does, and those, it's going to be adjusted in some ways to the culture. What about the means? Yeah, I think most of the means are going to end up, ideally, you want it to be indigenous to the culture. Now, what you find out, especially in, you know, missions history, some of the first Western missionaries who are going out, to them it's all package. And so you can go over to places in Asia and you can find places where they built nice white church buildings with a steeple and a church bell, exactly like they remembered back in New England or back in Europe. And it sticks out like a sore thumb because what? It's not, it doesn't, it's not indigenous at all. It was just taken lock, stock, and barrel from another place. And so the message is the same. And, you know, the methods have to be based in Scripture, preaching the, preaching the gospel and teaching. But the way it manifests itself, you want it to be indigenous, something that, that, that uh, is true to the culture that's there. Specifically, this term indigenous, a lot of time refers to what people call the three-self model. All right, the three-self model. All right, so here are the three selves, Okay. It doesn't have anything to do with the Trinity. The first time I heard this, I was like, where are we going here? All right. First one is self-propagating. All right. So this speaks to multiplication. All right. So 
the missionary wants to start a church that is self-propagating. In other words, it can multiply itself. It can create other churches. One of my instructors in school, he said, we don't want mule churches. All right, so a mule church, or a mule, I'm sorry, a mule is great for what it does. It's a good worker. It can't bear any offspring. All right, we don't want mule churches. We want churches that can reproduce other churches. So they're involved, they're, they're evangelizing in their area, but they're also trying to get other churches started. They're self-propagating. Uh, so they evangelize, they produce missionaries, they plant churches, self-propagating. Second, self, self-governing. So this has to do with autonomy, independence. And I think on this particular self, as Baptists, we have a huge jump on this one because we already feel that it's very important for each local church to be independent, to, be, to have a, a government that's based upon the congregation and the pastor and leadership that the Lord has appointed there. But this takes on a new life when you think about the mission field. You know, helping a church get to the point where they can appoint their own leaders and make their own decisions and govern themselves. Self-governing. All right, and the last one, self-supporting. This has to do with finances. Okay, we're trying to avoid, quote-unquote, welfare church, where they're just kind of used to getting money to run things from outside. Um, Of course, the phenomenon they call rice Christians, you know, people who are just there for whatever material profit they can get. Um, churches that are relying upon the missionary for all their materials, their building, etc., etc. And, and, you know, this is the goal. This isn't always what it looks like initially. But these are, these are things that people have picked out and said, if we want an indigenous church, a church that can live in its culture and continue to go forward in its culture, these are some aspects you've got to have. It has to be able to reproduce itself has to be governing itself, not from outside. It has to be able to support itself. And this has been graphically illustrated in times in history when, you know, missionaries have gone in, they've started churches, and all of a sudden the, the country closes. Well, if your churches were set up to do these things, they have a good chance of going on. But if not, it's not really a very, it, it's going to have a hard time living indigenous to that culture there. So that's what we're talking about. Indigenous church, this three-self model, and I think this is helpful as we think about what is the goal? What are we hoping to leave behind? So if the work that they were to do, which they fulfilled, was planting these type of churches, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll see later on that this is indeed what they did, what are the ways they used to make that happen? All right, these are our missionary methods that we analyzed a second ago in Acts chapter 14. We'd underlined those words, uh, brought out those different verbs here, and I believe I've got them uh, listed here. Yep, listed here on the paper here. So here's our missionary methods. Just going to run through them very quickly. Not going to spend a, a, a long time analyzing these. First word in our list, they preached the gospel to that city. All right, preach the gospel. And in, in, in the Greek, this is just the one word, evangelized. All right, they evangelized. They preached the gospel. And we see this again and again and again. I mean, this is like definitely the one constant of Paul's pattern. He goes to a place, you immediately find him finding a venue, different in different places, 
the synagogue sometimes, Mars Hill, you know, the marketplace, a, a schoolhouse. But, you know, different venues, even differences in how he presented it. Sometimes Paul was talking to Jews. And so he adjusted his presentation of the gospel to their understanding. He talks about prophecy and who Messiah was supposed to be. Other times he's talking to Gentiles. And even when you read and look at it, you find he talked different to different Gentiles. When he was out in the country in Lyconia, the people came out. He talked about farming and how God was the one who gave them the, the rain and all these things. And just relating it to them. And then when he's in Mars Hill in Athens in a culture city, he, he references their philosophers and poets and, and talks about how God is the one that, that created all of us. And so... One way or another, he was preaching the gospel. This is where he always started. And, and as in the missionary task, this is where it always has to start. Other things can come in to help, but the gospel has to stay front and center. So they preached the gospel to that city. All right, next step. It says they taught many. All right, teaching many. Now when I looked at this, I expected this to be the word for teaching like a school teacher teaching. But it's not. This is the word we looked at in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You remember that? Go ye and teach all nations. What was it? Make disciples. That was the idea. And so this is that exact same word. Alright, so they preached the gospel, and then the next step was making disciples. So they, they, they put the gospel out there for everybody, and then for those who are willing to receive it, they spent the time with them to work with them. These people became converts and became disciples. The gospel was preached. It was followed up upon. They made disciples of many. All right, we notice also another step here was returning. They had, they had visited a number of cities on this, on this journey. And so, you know, they didn't expect that these people were going to be ready to be this kind of church we're talking to immediately. They're going back and working with these people over a period of time. All right, so they return to these places. And, you know, we see this on the mission field today. Many times missionaries have to spend a significant amount of time with a congregation of people and keep going back to continue helping them grow to the point where they're ready to be fully independent. And this is what Paul and Barnabas were doing here as well. All right, put these two together. This is from verse 22. They confirmed the souls of the disciples and exhorted them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And so we would probably... Consider this what we talk about discipleship. All right, somebody who is a confirmed believer who wants to go further, and here they are confirming their faith, not like the Catholics and some of the other, you know, uh, denominations where this is an actual ceremony they do, but just helping them to be firm in the faith and also exhorting them, encouraging them to be prepared specifically. And I found this really interesting, to, especially to be ready for persecution. And we're going to see this come up again. This was part of what they were doing. And, you know, we're, I, I want to talk about this later in our course, but, you know, persecution is a real thing that Christians face all over the world. 
And so as part of their goal of getting this church to, to a place where it could go forward on its own, they said, you need to be ready for persecution. We're going to encourage you. We're going to confirm you in the faith uh, so that you'll be ready to endure that. And, you know, really the suffering and the sacrifice involved is one of the things that builds ownership for people to say, this is my church. We're going to go forward for the Lord. So they confirmed and exhorted the believers. All right. Verse 23, they ordained elders in every church. Um, there are some places in the New Testament where elders, I believe, is referring just to mature believers in the church. But in this case, it's referring to the church leadership. You know, in some passages called elder, bishop, a pastor. So this is what they were doing. They're going through and, and, and finding those that the Lord had put their hand upon and appointing them to positions of leadership. So what? So the church could govern itself and be independent, and continue going forward for the Lord. Alright? Next up, they prayed with fasting. And I don't think this is the only time they prayed and fasted during this process. Um, this is so vital to the work of missions, because we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a formula where, you know, you get A, B, and C, and you get D. All right, these are the steps that the Apostle Paul followed, but it doesn't stand to reason. You just do this, this, that, and the other, and you're going to get this product. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes it go. It's the power of God that makes it go. And so prayer and fasting was a way they get a hold of that power. Uh, and, and so we see the Apostles doing it. They're doing it with the new believers. They wanted the churches to become independent, you know, financially and, and, in, and in leadership. You want them to be independent of the missionary eventually, but never independent of the Lord. And so they're teaching these people to get in touch with the Lord and get their leadership from Him. Finally, the last step, they commended them to the Lord. In other words, they left. They went in, they did their job, and when they, when they believed and they were, they were ready to leave these folks, they left. They said, it's yours now. They commended to the Lord. Paul had the faith to commit these people to the Holy Spirit. And we see that he continued to pray for these people. He followed up on these people through his letters. That's why we have the New Testament. You know, he wrote to the believers in Ephesus and in, in Corinth and, and in, in uh, Colossae and Philippi. And so he's following up with them. He didn't, he didn't cut the apron string and say, have a nice life, I'm never going to see you again. But he said, you're on your own now. This is, this is yours. You need to take ownership for it. And, and greater than that, it's Jesus' church. And so he commended them to the Lord. And he, he had the faith to do that. That's hard to do. Um, it's just to, you know, take your hands off, say, it's yours now, you know. I'm here if you need me, but you have to take ownership now. You have to take leadership now. And so here's the, the, uh, the, the missionary methods that I believe we see here. So we saw, leaving Antioch, the work God had called them to do. We see when they came back, they said, we fulfilled the work. 
We've seen the in-between steps. Now let's look at the finished product, all right? I want to look at a biblical example of what this looked like. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1. So we're going to look at the example of the church at Thessalonica. This was not started on Paul's first missionary trip. So we just read kind of the analysis of Paul's first missionary trip. Thessalonica was started during Paul's second missionary trip when they left from the continent of Asia, went to Europe. The Macedonian call Thessalonica was a city in Macedonia and was one of those places that was reached during that that voyage. And so I want us to read, starting, let's just, I think we can just read this whole chapter. And as we read it, I want you to try to think about it in terms of these, these methods that we've been talking about, in terms of the indigenous church, you know, something that's self-propagating, self-supporting, self-governing, and just see what things stick out to you. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Did you see any, any words there, any ideas that, see, that connected with what we've been talking about here? Anything stick out to you? Yeah, verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Um, oh. But also in every place your faith to God is spread abroad. So they were self-propagating. Self-propagating. All right. So, so verse 8, he's kind of gotten to the, the finished product. So the first few verses, just an introduction, he's talking about their faith. But in verse 5, look, he talks about what they did. Our gospel came unto you. Not in word only, but also in power. So what did they do? They preached the gospel to the people in Thessalonians. He's telling you, hey, remember what we did? We came in, we preached the gospel. What about verses 6 and 7? He said, you became followers of us. There's that discipleship. You received the word in much affliction. Remember we talked about persecution? And so he said, Here's, he's, <clears throat> he's talking about the time they spent teaching them and discipling them, confirming them, exhorting them. Uh, to, to continue on through the trials that they were going to face. And when you get to verse 8, once again, we, we, we find a church that was strong enough and independent enough to be able to sound out the word of God, not only Macedonia, which was their home province, and Achaia, the neighboring province, but it says in every place. 
That sounds a lot like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So this is a, this is a success story. I mean, the church in Thessalonica said, here's what we did, and it's the same things that he did on his first missionary journey. So we did these. This is how you received it. This is where we got to. And so we have an example of this missionary method and the finished product, which is a church that not only is able to sustain itself, but able to, to continue going forward and to propagate itself. There's a biblical example. Can this sort of thing happen again? I want to look at a historical example. All right? The church in Korea. All right, let's say just say Protestant churches in Korea. When we look at missions history in Korea, we find that, that there wasn't a whole lot going on there until fairly recently in historical terms. So in 1885, the first Protestant missionaries took up residence in Korea and started teaching and preaching. In 1907, they'd been working for years, not a lot of fruit. In 1907, there was a great revival in Pyongyang, which is now the capital of North Korea. Hard to believe, but a huge revival. That's where these pictures are from. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Koreans trusting Christ and then becoming committed disciples. Throughout the early 1900s, they endured much persecution. They were on Jap under Japanese occupation during the course of World War II. Um, the Japanese were shutting down the Korean churches, not to mention the hardships they were facing as a people. But after enduring that time, from the end of World War II on into the, well, really continuing on, but real heyday between 1945 and 1985 of church planting, within South Korea, and at that time, the country opened up to allow Korean citizens to go abroad, and they began sending their own missionaries, just about a hundred years after uh, they had been receiving the missionaries, and, and these first churches were getting started. In 2018, according to an account I read, South Korea had sent out 27,436 missionaries. This is, this is how many South Korean missionaries were serving abroad, I'm sorry, in 2018 in 170 different countries. And that includes many closed countries where Westerners are not welcome. And so you see it in the news sometimes. Korean missionaries in Pakistan, in Central Asia, and some of these people have given up their lives because they're serving in very difficult places. Now, I want to qualify this. Not all of these churches, not all of these missionaries would necessarily be, um, you know, on the same page as us. Some of these are charismatics, things like that. But the point I want us to see is, is this is what happened. Missionaries came. They, they preached the gospel. The people believed. And over the course of time, the, the Korean churches became strong enough that they were able to not only continue on themselves, not only able to continue evangelizing their own country, but able to send out missionaries around the world. And that's what we want to see happen everywhere. Not just in South Korea, but in every nation of the world. That we could go in there, preach the gospel, and that the people would take it, and that churches would be started and built that would be able to continue taking the message on, being able to propagate themselves. 
So, just to summarize the apostolic pattern, would you turn one more passage, Romans chapter 15. All right, Romans chapter 15, and um, I'm going to read starting in verse 18. All right, this is the testimony of the Apostle Paul near the end of his life. Romans 15, verse 18. I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you, but now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I may be somewhat filled with your company. So Paul is given a, a, a thumbnail of his ministry thus far. So I start from Jerusalem. I've been all the way around to Illyricum, which nowadays is um, like, should have looked this up, used to be Yugoslavia, somewhere in the Balkans. Okay, so he says, I've been everywhere from the Middle East through, um, you know, through Asia Minor, through Greece, up through the Balkans, and he said, I have fully preached the gospel. All right, so here's what he's doing. The apostolic pattern, first of all, taking the message of the gospel. He says, I have fully preached the gospel through all these areas. Alright, we looked at the way, he, the way he did went about it in planting churches. He used biblical methods and appropriate means. Alright, we said the means can be indigenous, but we also need to keep those under the authority of Scripture. Because sometimes those can be more of a liability than a help to what we're trying to present. But notice this, the apostolic pattern, work yourself out of a job. Paul says, I have fully preached the gospel, and look at in verse 24, he says, now having no more place in these parts. He said, I've got nothing to do around here anymore. I've worked myself out of a job in all these areas, and so now I'm planning to go to Spain. I need to find a new place because I've worked myself out of a job here. The churches, they're ready to do the job to evangelize Greece and evangelize Asia Minor and evangelize the Middle East. And so it's time for me to go to Spain and I'm hoping to stop over in Rome as well. So Paul lived, the pattern we see in him is that he was striving to see the multiplication of strong, independent reproducing churches. And I believe that's still the pattern that we want to see today. And so the Bible has given us a guidebook, methods that we can follow, and I believe we have license to use some creativity as to the means uh, that the Lord gives us. But we have these biblical methods, the example of the Apostle Paul to follow, to take the message of the gospel using these biblical methods, using appropriate means, Work ourselves out of a job.
get the churches to where they're able to do the job and then to continue to go forward to try to see the multiplication of strong, independent, reproducing churches. I believe that is the apostolic pattern in a nutshell. Any questions, comments, um, anything I could help clarify or at least try to clarify? Yes. Church in China, and I always wondered what that meant. Do you know anything about the three self movement in China? I don't. I know that the three self church in China is the state church. I don't know if it's exactly the same three selves they're talking about. However, I think the idea they're trying to get at is it's a Chinese church. It's not beholden to churches in any other part of the world. They're kind of taking that concept and distorting it a little bit because they want to have state control of the church. And so it's the Chinese church. Nobody else should have anything to do with it. It's under the control of China, which, of course, means it's not actually self-governing. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's what they're referring to, but I could be mistaken because I haven't done a lot of research on that. But, yeah, that is... You, you, you read things and you find there's house churches in China and then there's the three self church and that's the one that is approved by the government. Um, the three self churches we're talking about, these would be ones that are independent under the leadership of the Lord and not bound to the state in any way. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.